Yo, 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 it's your man's Big Daddy Roughneck. You're tuned into the Gary Brugman Podcast. Prepare to be entertained. Hello, everybody. This is Gary Brugman coming to you from Fort Worth, Texas today. Uh, This is where the West begins. That's what the police cars say up here. Anyway, I'm going to go ahead and dedicate the show to somebody else today. And I'm going to read you a chapter from... uh, uh, the field manual from Jocko Willink, and we're going to go ahead and got a few things to talk about. I'm going to tell you all about prison life. All right, so with that, let's get to it. Hello, America, and hello, Texas. This is the Gary Brugman Podcast. I'm coming to you today from Fort Worth, Texas, and I uh, was in San Antonio earlier this week, and the weather was just like crap, man, and it was raining, it was cold. Uh, the dampness was getting to my bones because I have so many broken bones. But uh, I drove up to Fort Worth on Tuesday. I had some doctor's appointments and I drove up here. And it was raining part of the way, but then it cleared up. But yesterday it was just downpours everywhere and and um, lightning and thunder. I mean, I, I dig that kind of stuff. I was in the Coast Guard, so I love rough weather. But I mean, today, today, Thursday, it is awesome. It's a beautiful day out, and um, it's 72 degrees, and I went outside, and I had to come back in and toss on some shorts and boots because it was just that kind of weather. Today, I want to go ahead and dedicate this show to somebody that means the world to me. Uh, I love him with all my heart. He's everything that I got, and um, of course, I'm talking about my son, Jake Dillon. Um, Jake, I love you, and this show is for you, and I want to let you know that you are missed here in Texas, and I can't wait till you come back. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, another chapter from the uh, Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual by former Navy SEAL Jocko Willink, and this one's called Fear of Failure. Fear of Failure, and I like this chapter. It says, Fear of Failure. Fear of Failure can keep you from taking the risk. It can leave you sitting there, paralyzed into not taking action, and that is obviously bad, but I don't want you to overcome fear of failure. I want you to be afraid of failure. Fear of failure is good. Fear of failure will keep you up at night, planning, rehearsing, going over the contingencies. Fear of failure will keep you training hard. Fear of failure will stop you from cutting corners. Fear of failure will keep you working, thinking, striving, and relentlessly trying to be more prepared for battle. So I want you to be afraid of failing. I fear failure. But more important, I want you to be horrified, terrified of sitting on the sidelines and doing nothing. That, that is what I want you to be afraid of. Waking up in six days or six weeks or six years or 60 years and being no closer to your goal. You have made no progress. That is the horror. That is the nightmare. That is what you really need to be afraid of being stagnant so get up and go take the risk take the gamble take the first step take action and don't let another day slip by yeah i know how that is i've sat around and done nothing for a long time and trying to figure out what my next step is and i you know what sometimes i still don't know what my next step is which is why i'm making this podcast um it's something it give me some direction and something to think about and gets my brain turning and i'm really really enjoying it and uh and like i said i'm not the talk show host or or any public figure or or journalist by any means i'm just out here just talking my brains out so um Last week, I left off when the uh, marshals came to get me. 
And uh, just to recap a little bit, I pushed an illegal alien on the ground, apparently violated his civil rights. There no, there was no beating, no nothing going on. Uh, the guy's extent of his injuries was a loss of breath and a residual pain on his side. Um, apparently from where I pushed him on the ground with my foot, but he couldn't remember what side it was because it was so hard. It was so hard to cook uh, uh, a kick that another agent heard it 80 yards away, three quarters of a football field away. He heard me put my foot on this guy, but the guy can't remember what side I kicked him on a year later. And, um, and the guy claims he was coming to the United States to work and make some money for his daughter's chemotherapy because she has terminal cancer. That never came out in the courtroom. Uh, he was asked if he was getting compensated or repaid or in, and he was asked six different ways if the government promised him anything. And he said, no, less than six months after I was found guilty, his daughter had completed her chemotherapy, according to a TV show that we were both on. So who paid for that? I don't know. I've tried to get some answers. I haven't been able to get them. Um, I stayed out on bond for a year. During that year, I had a job selling cars and I enrolled myself in school, started using my veterans benefits. And then on uh, April 4th, 2004, um, after a very, very good night with my brother Shorty, marshals came and uh, almost took my doors off the hinges, pushed my mom on the ground, took me away because uh, I had lost the appeal and uh, they had revoked my bond. And I was waiting for a call from my attorney so I can self-surrender. And that was something that I had done in the past twice. So, But now they felt the need to come and uh, kick down my doors and push my mom on the ground. So... I got taken away and I still remember that when I was in that vehicle and they, we, we pulled up to the federal building in San Antonio, Texas. I remembered how many times I had gone in that building on official duty. Um, and now I'm getting taken in the back in handcuffs. And I mean, you want to talk about demeaning and demoralizing? And mind you, the whole thing is I still don't know what I did wrong. I mean, it's twenty, almost 20 years later, and I still don't know what I did wrong. Um, I, must done, I must have done something wrong, and whatever it was, you know, I haven't figured it out because they took me away. So I'm trying to accept responsibility and hold myself accountable. But I did everything by the book as far as, 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 far as my good heart is concerned. I did everything right. So they took me in, and they processed me, and they took me to... Um, a geo prison, which was a contract prison. It was a, uh, it was the old Bear County, uh, Bear County Jail, I believe it was. And now it got taken over by uh, what used to be Wackenhut and geo outsourcing. And it's just a bunch of, bunch of hacks with no experience, guys that couldn't be cops. And now they're wearing tactical BDUs and think that they're the shit and they're not. Um, not once did I get my ass um, beat while I was in prison, except for one time by the guards at Geo. These guys, um, I was sleeping, and the other inmates had a way to turn on the TV. They set the timers, and because TVs went like TVs went out at I believe it was ten o'clock, but these guys liked to watch TV late. And we were on our own cells. We were like on a run, and I was in the first cell. 
So the TV turned on and these guys came up and wanted to know where the broomstick was. And I'm like, I don't have a broomstick in my, and they never found a broomstick in myself. They think that I reached out and, and, uh, turn on the TV. Next thing you know, I hear a stomp and drag. And I'm thinking to myself, you have got to be kidding me. They're coming to get me. So I was just lying down and they dragged me out and, and, uh, thumped me down. And the only time I ever got my ass handed to me by guards in prison was by the geo guys. So, you know, if anybody happens to get badged by a geo outsourcing guy, let's not uh, cut him any slack. But anyway, moving on, I was there for about four and a half months and then I got taken away and put on Con Air. And um, we sat at the Austin airport in this van for two hours waiting on Con Air. And we were watching planes land and planes land. We were like on a back tarmac, a tarmac that nobody uses. And all of a sudden you see this plane coming and it's got smoke coming out of the one engine. It's leaving a trail of smoke. And I, I shit you not, I'm, I'm not kidding you here. This is the truth. And that plane comes and it lands and it pulls around and it's got this like orange globe on the back and it says Planet Airways. So it rose up to us, the back opens up and now come these US Marshals with shotguns and uh, they start calling names. They put me up there and um, I'm, I'm shackled in my hands and my waist and my, and my feet are shackled. And I'm in this huge um, prison outfit because, you know, prison guards think they're funny and I found this to be true wherever you go. Um, whenever whenever you're going to go somewhere and, and, and you ask them for clothes and you tell them your size, if you tell them you're a large, or if you tell them you're a medium, they're going to give you a 3XL. You tell them you're a 3XL, they're going to give you a small. So, you know, that's a little joke that they got going on, which I don't find very funny. But, you know, you want to talk about civil rights violation, but that's besides the point. But um, we get on Con Air and we start flying and we're going up. And um, I'm looking and, you know, I've been in small planes and I've been in commercial planes. But this is the first time me flying on Con Air. And I'm thinking to myself, how high are we going? Because, you know, when you fly on a commercial plane, you know, you, you see the clouds below you and you can you see smaller aircraft below you. This guy was, I swear, he was heading into the stratosphere because we were, I, I, I got to say, we were almost at 50,000 feet because... We were, I, I was starting, it was starting to get, the sky was starting to get dark. And I'm looking down and the clouds are, I swear the clouds got to be 20,000 feet below us. I'm like, how high is this freaking idiot going? So we get there and um, we start coming in for a landing in Oklahoma City because that's where the transfer center is. When you get locked up by the feds and they're moving you around, um, they, when you get to your prison, they separate you, whether you're going to a camp, a low, medium, high, or super max, whatever it is. But while you're in transit and you're waiting on space, they don't care if you've been, if you're going to jail for tax evasion or capital murder, they put everybody in the same place at the transfer center. You're all together, which is the, kind of the scary part because you don't know the caliber of the inmate. So... We were, um, we got there and when you come in for a landing, you know, most of you that have flown, 
you know, you start seeing the buildings getting bigger, you start seeing the cars. And then sometimes right before you're landing, when you're in a holding pattern, the plane will bank to the left and you can see one, you can see land out one, out, out the starboard side. And then you can see the sky on the port side. Well, picture those two combined. All right, you're starting to see the cars and then he's coming in for a landing and the wings down and it's just missing rooftops. I'm, you know, I might be over exact, but it was low. And uh, he comes over the intercom and says, well, hold on. And then right, bef- right before we land, he straightens up, hits the ground. Everybody jerks back and forth. Whether it was done on purpose, I don't know. But um, it was one of the roughest. This was a DC-10, I believe. It was one of the roughest big plane landings I ever had. I mean, we all ended up in, in each other's laps and you don't want to end up in, in other inmates' laps because, you know, that's where the fights start. Good thing we were all, we were all handcuffed and we couldn't move. So um, the plane taxis, and for those of you that don't know this, you're going to be surprised here in a second. The plane taxis and it gets to a terminal. And when it gets to the terminal, the jetway comes out and they start unloading everybody into the jetway. And when you walk out into the jetway, there's a whole bunch of Bureau of Prison guys waiting there because you're in prison. The The transfer center in Oklahoma City is on the prison, is on the prison, is on the airport. The prison itself is on the airport. So you get off the plane, you go to the jetway, you and you're in prison. So I ended up being there for, I don't even remember, two, two months. Everybody got processed out. I was one of the last ones there that with the group that I came because normally you spend, they'll say you spend, you know, three to six weeks there. I ended up being there over two months. Finally, I find out where I'm going and they're sending me to a low in Coleman, Florida. Now I figured, hey, you know, I'm going to a low. How bad can that be? You know, it's low security. And uh, I'll tell you right now, it's one of the worst levels of prison you can be in because the, 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 attitude and the caliber of inmate that's there is just pure scum. All they are are a bunch of snitches, plea bargains, guys that rolled over. Um, you know, they, they, they don't want to get their hard life and be locked up all the time. So th- when you go to a low, the, the compounds, the sleeping quarters is like a squad bay. So you got 150 guys in each squad bay. And one thing I couldn't get over this place, and this was the Coleman, Florida, the, the Federal Correctional Institute in Coleman, Florida has everything. It has a camp, a low, medium, and high. And each one, other than the camp, but the low, the medium, and the high have, they've got to have 2,500 inmates apiece, not including the camp. That's, that's 10,000 inmates in one place. And I know Rikers Island is way bigger, but that, that's an exempt, exemption all of it itself. But all these people in one place. And um, when you're at the low, and like I said, there's, there's very little respect because when you, you know, you're in all, kind of like office cubicles. It's cinder block, but they're set up like office cubicles. There's no walls. There's no doors. You just walk into your cube and you have your celly and you got bunk beds. And there's two of everything, two little desks, two lockers, two hooks, two chairs. And when you sleep on the top bunk, you see everybody else sleeping on the top bunk. And just my luck, I end up right under the light that doesn't go out because they don't put out all the lights. They put out like every other light. So if you've ever slept with a fluorescent tube lighting two feet above your head, 
It's not the easiest thing to do, no matter how much you blind yourself. And then uh, they also, they, they keep it really, really, really cold because they want everybody bedded down. They don't want nobody getting up. So they want everybody bedded down. Um, but the level of disrespect that's there in that prison between the guards and the inmates, I mean, um, I, uh, I got taken to see my counselor and the first thing the scumbag told me was, um, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you served. I don't care anything about you. I just need you to understand that you are no longer Agent Brugman. You're inmate Brugman. And you're going to get no special favors around here because we don't like dirty cops. So right away, I felt that bucket of warm water that had been pouring all over me back at the trial. And um, I didn't know what to expect. They walked me back and uh, put me in the hole. The the special housing unit, the shoe, as they called it. It's basically, uh, to them, they called it protective custody because I had to be cleared to be on the compound by the captain. And he was on vacation. So they took me back and put me in the hole for another 10 days. And, uh, you know, when I say put me in the hole, it's like the four and a half months that I had just been through. It, um, you're in a eight by 10 cell and, um, you're in there 24 hours a day. Every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you get to come out for one hour to take a shower and go out onto the rec yard. But I never went out onto the rec yard because they have, they got to shackle you up. They got to walk you out, strip search on your way out, way in. And um, I just took advantage of taking a shower three days a week. And um, in this housing unit that I was at, they actually had a shower in there, so that was actually pretty good. But still, it was a uh, it was twenty four hour day lockup. in in my in in my two years that I was in prison, I spent almost ten months total time in uh, in solitary, or as they call it, protective custody. If you want to think what that's like. What are we in? We are now in March of 2020. Picture this. Lock yourself in your bathroom and don't come out till January. 24 hours a day. Just stay in there. And uh, that's basically what it's like. The windows that I had at this unit, it was was one long strip of windows, probably a foot wide by six feet high and uh, you couldn't see outside because it was frosted. They put a paper over it, kind of like a film and it was frosted so you can't even see outside. But at the very bottom corner, there was a little piece that would just kind of start to unpeel and it was probably the size of half my pinky nail. I mean, literally it was, it was, it was tiny, it was a little slither. And uh, I spent many days just squatted down and peeking out there and peeking out into the rec yard because I hadn't seen outside in, in, in months. So anyway, they came back, they put me back out on the compound after 10 days and uh, I didn't know what to expect. So I quickly learned that uh, there's, there's a currency exchange in prison and it's uh, stamps. Stamps is the big currency. You buy a book of stamps and uh, right away the value goes down 
I think at the time, and I'm, I'm trying to remember, this was a long time ago, a book of stamps was like seven fifty. So as soon as soon as you got a brand new book of stamps, it was worth five bucks. And um, you had individual stamps as well. And then the other currency was uh, mackerel, like those little zip packs of mackerel and tuna fish. That was all currency as well. And you they, they put a limit on how many you could buy per week. But, you know, you stockpiled them. And if they caught your stockpile, you lost all your money because you ain't allowed to have currency. So um, I was there for a while and I kept getting these hard looks from the Mexican population. And uh, I didn't know that everybody knew who I was, but I eventually found out. They kept asking why I was here and I kept saying none of your business and they kept telling me, you're a cop, ain't you? And I was like, no, I'm not a cop because technically I wasn't, I was a federal agent. So this one guy came up to me and uh, he was kind of like one of the trustees and he pulled me aside and he says, hey man, you need to watch yourself because everybody knows who you are in here. And I told him, really, who am I? And uh, he told me exactly who I was. I was a former Border Patrol agent and I was in prison for uh, beating a drug smuggler, which isn't why I was there. But I was in prison for beating a drug smuggler and uh, pushing around illegal aliens. So the Mexican population wasn't happy with me. So I asked, how did this get out? He goes, it doesn't matter. We have a network. Everybody knows. So just giving you a heads up. So I, um, when we were, when we were at this prison, it was just, like I said, there was this low class of, of uh, inmate and we had a group. You used to have to, you used to have to go shower in teams. Right. Like, you know, you'd have to find yourself, you know, if, if you can trust anybody in prison, I mean, which I don't, but, you know, you need to you need to get with somebody. And they had they had this thing where they would jump you in the shower because it's like a community shower and um, they would jump you in the shower and beat your ass for whatever reason they had. They didn't really need a reason. So, you know, when it was time to shower, either. Y'all go together and one watches your, watches the door while you shower and he'll shave and whatnot. And then when you're done, you'll switch and you watch his back. And if for some reason he's not ready to take a shower, he'll go there and watch your back, but then you owe him a shower. So regardless of whatever you're doing, eating, studying, reading, whatever, if he says, hey, you got to watch my back, watch, not wash, um, you got to return the favor. So that that got kind of old after a while, but uh, it's the way it was. Cause if you know, I mean, you can go shower by yourself and take that chance, you know. And um, but it was kind of like it's kind of like a fun thing to do for them. I don't understand why. So um, I kept trying to see if they can send me to a camp because I heard about this threat, and you know, you really can't tell the guards about the threat because if they, if you tell them that you're in danger for your life, they're not gonna go after the person that threatens you. They're gonna put you in isolation. They're gonna send you to the shoe and you don't wanna be in the shoe. So, you know, you had to kind of like keep it to yourself, but I did mention it, I said, hey, you know, I don't belong here. I'm like, I'm not a violent person and, um Illegal aliens are not allowed at the camps, prison camps. Camps are for people that are about to get out or, or white collar criminals or whatever, because they have no fences and they have a lot more freedom. Their housing is better. 
And um, the main thing that I didn't care about all that, I mean, I could survive, but the main thing was that illegal aliens are not allowed on the camp. And the most people that wanted my ass in prison were illegal aliens because many of them were there because they got busted by the Border Patrol. But they wouldn't send me to a camp because they were telling me that I was a violent felon because I pushed a guy on the ground and I beat a dope smuggler's ass. So check this out. I'm like, how, how does that compute? And they were looking at my sentencing guidelines. So I got a two-point escalation in sentencing because they claim that uh, the illegal alien and the dope smuggler were vulnerable victims. Apparently, the illegal alien had given up and I ran up and, you know, they took the uh, trainee Alegria's word on it and uh, said that I ran up and I started punching and kicking and which I never did. And the alien testified that I didn't do, but they still gave me a two point escalation for that. And also, the don't know if you remember, the dope smuggler said that I had uh, he had tripped and I ran up and I held him down and put on my gloves and then proceeded to, to break break his nose. Well, apparently, since he had already given up, which is not true, uh, he was a vulnerable victim. So in order to get that two-point escalation in my sentencing, they used a case, and I should have been better prepared. I don't have the case in front of me, but I will find it. They used a case where a sheriff's deputy raped a handcuffed woman in the back of his police car. And he got charged and, you know, she was a vulnerable victim because she was handcuffed and she was a woman and and she was drunk and he raped her. And that's what they used to compare to me. And I was like, how how is this even possible? So the camp was out and. uh, And I got surrounded by a by a group of uh, Mexicans and they were telling me that I needed to check into the shoe or or they were going to cut me. They were going to beat me. And I told them, no, I'm not going to the shoe. And they're like, yeah, but in here. I told them I wasn't afraid. I told them I wasn't afraid of 40 of you out there, and I'm not afraid of 40 of you in here. Because there was almost 40 of them. And um, they told them, yeah, but out there, you're free to run. Over here, you're locked up with us. And I looked at them, and I was like, what do I do? So I remember this beautiful line from, uh, from a movie, The Watchmen. I was like, I told them, no mother flower I may have used in other words I said I'm not locked up in here with you you guys are locked up in here with me and I'm not going into the shoe and you better stay that out of my face so I walked off and I went back to my cube all big and proud and I sat there and I put my my head in my hands and I said I'm dead I'm done I'm dead so um, had a incident on the wreck yard and um, and uh, I got jumped by four of them and I didn't end up on the bottom of the list because two of them ended up with a split melon and uh, didn't get in, well, let me rephrase that, didn't get in trouble for it at the time because everybody just walked off and guards started coming, nobody knew anything, but eventually they found out it was me. And um, I got transferred to the um, federal penitentiary in Atlanta, the high security. So I get woken up one day and um, they tell me I have to go to R&D. And I was like, R&D, what's that? 
and uh, receiving and discharge. So I looked at the clock and it was five, four, uh, five o'clock in the morning. And uh, they took me out, they out-processed me and they put me on a bus shackled, shackled my hands to my waist, chains on my ankles. And um, I said, I need to make a phone call. I need to let my mom know I'm leaving. I need to, you know, and they were like, nope, you're out. So they put me on a bus from, mind you, Coleman, Florida. This is up near uh, Ocala. Uh, I think it's Lee County. And uh, the bus went to Fort Lauderdale. Um, I take that back. No, the the bus went to the airport. Then they put me on a plane. The plane went to Fort Lauderdale. Then it went to um, Pensacola. Then it went to Alabama. And then it went to... The, uh, the penitentiary in Atlanta. So I was on this flight all day long, all day long, almost 16 hours on this flight. They shut it down in Atlanta and they took me to the federal penitentiary and they put me on a bus. And um, when we rolled up to the penitentiary in Atlanta and you see that big sign in front that says United States Federal Penitentiary, Atlanta, Georgia. And you look up at the hill and you see this penitentiary it just looked straight up like Castle Grayskull. I was like, what the fuck am I doing here? So we get in and everything's a series of tunnels and a lot of yelling by the guards. And, you know, Atlanta has a big black population and I have never in my life, let me tell you, I have never in my life seen guards as big as these guys that were there. I mean, I've seen some pro football players and these guys were ginormous. I literally sized one up and I was like, this guy's thigh is the size of my waist. And and I was, and they, when, when they would yell, it would just like make your heart skip a beat. And, um, we got, we got transferred in. And, uh, if you've ever seen the movies where you've got the two tiers of prisons, upper and bottom, and, uh, and just the runs just like doesn't end. You can just see the tunnel all the way down, the run of cells just going all the way down with the walkways in between. And um, that's what it looks like. A lot of yelling and they put me in a cell and I walk in there and there's already six freaking dudes in there already. There was, there was a bunk, there was two bunk beds. Well, there was a bunk bed, two beds. One guy was on the top, one guy was on the bottom. And one guy was underneath the bottom back, bottom rack. And then they had a, two mattresses thrown on the floor. And there was one guy on each mattress. And there was another guy wrapped around the commode, wrapped around the toilet, spoon in the toilet, literally. And I was like, looked at the guard, I said, where am I supposed to sleep? Told me to find a spot. And um, I said, do I get a pillow? And he told me no pillow. So I... um. I ended up sleeping under the under the sink with my feet up on the toilet bowl. And uh, there was a roll of toilet paper there. There were two rolls of toilet paper. So I came and I took the cardboard out of the middle and I flattened it and I used the uh, toilet paper as a pillow. And uh, just still trying to figure out how the hell I ended up here. I mean, I you know, I'm not perfect, but I tried doing everything right and setting up a career for retirement and serving the country. And here I am, and I don't, I don't understand it. So the guy on the uh, top rack started talking to me, and he's like, "What you doing in here? 
what you doing in here? And I'm like, you talking to me? And this dude sits up and uh, he's got dreads, but they look almost like predator dreads. They're just like everywhere. And he's got these funky sunglasses made of aluminum foil. And he, and, and he's telling, he asked me how much time I had left. And I told him I had like a year or something to go. And he's like, a year or something? A year or something? Man, that ain't nothing. He goes, I'm six months into a 48-year sentence. A year to go? Man, you better stop your... I said, stop watching, man. I'm not doing anything. I just got here. And he says, you know what? You know what? Tell him to let you go and just put that on my tab. So I had to find it kind of funny. And and he had some meds because I guess he's he was on Xanax or whatever. They, he had some antidepressants he goes look i eat these like candy i eat these like candy i was like this is gonna get crazy so they moved some people around in the coming days and um a couple of people came and went and uh they moved this big guy in there and i don't walter walter his name was walter coke it was like koch k-o-c-h but he called himself cock Every time the guards would come up, they'd be like, Koch. He'd be like, cock. And it would just drive me crazy. And this dude was from Aruba. And I wanted, well, I did. I ended up beating the living daylights out of this guy. Um, he was a big 6'2", 6'3", almost close to 300 pounder. But he would not shut up. And he kept talking about all the crimes that he committed against uh, women in Aruba. And what him and his friends would do. And I'm like, dude, you really need to shut the fuck up. And uh, and he's like, no, it was good. It was good. And he just kept on bragging. And at that time, there was only five of us in there. And it was me, him, these two little Mexicans that got busted on a submarine for smuggling cocaine by the Coast Guard. I was laughing at them. I kept calling them stupid. And uh, this meth head from Kentucky. And uh, we were, and mind you, we were locked up. I was there for a couple of months and we were, I was in the hole the whole time. And this dude was there for about two weeks already. And he kept telling these stories and just acting a fool and whatever. So when it came time to, for, when I became the lead person in the, in the, uh, in the cell, some people had gotten moved out and um, I was going to get a bunk. Technically, I should have had the top bunk because he had been in prison longer than I had. So he had those prison rights, but I wasn't going to give it to him. I said, I got the bottom bunk. He goes, no, I get the bottom bunk. So I put my stuff on there and I said, take it. And he wouldn't. So this cell, it was, it was, it wasn't a 10 by 12. It was, it was, it was, uh, smaller than that. And, um, it had two metal lockers and it had a little metal desk affixed to the wall with like a swivel chair. So he ended up on the top bunk and he had to take that swivel chair and pull it out and get on it and then get on the table to get on the top bunk. And he just wouldn't shut up and I would kick the bottom bunk and I'd tell him to shut up. And I I, I told the guards on, uh, on shower day that uh, they had to move me that something was going to happen and they wouldn't. They were like, nope, you're going to have to deal with it. And I kept telling them why and they they just wouldn't. And, you know, I didn't want to be a snitch, but I didn't want to catch a case either. So um, this dude started telling another story about how him and his friends took a girl out on a boat and kept her out there and, and you know, basically, basically raped her for three days. 
and I was pissed and I was really, really, really pissed. And I started kicking the bottom of his bunk and I started cursing his mother and um, trying to get him to go. And finally, he, oh, and I would always push the, uh, I would always push the swivel seat in with my foot so that when he came down, he'd have to like reach for it with his, uh, with his foot so he can, so he can step off. Cause I didn't want him putting his foot on my bed. So he would come up and, and he got mad and he finally came down off the top bunk and he, uh, he, he, he got the chair out and when he put all his weight on it, I kicked it out from under him and that 300 pound sack of shit hit the floor so hard and split his melon on the way down. And, uh, I gave, I gave him a, a, a hail storm of punches and, um, he was about to get up and I put, knocked the lockers down up on top of him. The little Mexicans are banging on the door, calling for a CO. They came in and broke it up. And, uh, then they put me in a cell by myself and they asked me what was going on. And I told them. and, uh, next thing you know, I'm getting pushed out and uh i actually got downgraded after that i don't know why i guess they didn't want they wanted to cover it up or whatnot but um i ended up being sent to yazoo city mississippi now mind you in all these months i haven't talked to my mom i haven't done anything because three days a week you can either take a shower and the shower lines were forever or you can make a phone call you only had one hour and you know that and they didn't let people out in groups they let everybody out at once so for one hour, almost 500 inmates had had chance to take a shower or use the phones. And there are only like 12 showers and 12 phones. So barely got a chance to do any. So I ended up going to Yazoo City, Mississippi, and that was a completely different experience. I ended up going to the to the um, to the medium there. And as soon as I walked in onto the compound, there was a group of people waiting. And and they're like they're like where are you from Atlanta your people over there where are you from California your people over there you Boricua Puerto Ricano you're with us over here and everybody just you know kept making up their groups Mexicanos over there Mexicans over there and uh, when I walked in there they didn't give me anything so apparently when I got there they had heard about what happened in Atlanta oh you're the one you're the one so I walk in and um. I didn't have I didn't have anything. They didn't give me no toothbrush. They didn't give me any good good clothes. They gave me underwears that were three XL, and uh, I was I was holding up I was holding up my sweatpants because my sweatpants were also three XL. And this dude named Rosa, uh, he had he had been in uh, twenty years. Well, he got a twenty year sentence. He was on his eighteenth year, and he was about to leave in a few months. And he took me in. Walk me up, walk me to where the Puerto Ricans were. Now, Yazoo City used to be run by the Mexican gangs, um, but it got really crazy there. So they uh, they uh, broke it up and transferred them all out. So now, basically, the whole prison was run by the Puerto Ricans. My favorite, go figure that. So Rosa took me to see some guys, and uh, Papo and uh, another guy, I don't remember his name. And these guys came up, and told me, dude, have you eaten? Have you, they gave you that? Here, I got, some, until you get better clothes here, you can use these sweatpants. And um, and here, here's, here's a pair of boxers, yeah. I had to wear somebody else's boxers, but you know what? These these tidy whities were very loosey. So I had, I, I took them and dude, I was feeling good. They gave me some slippers. They gave me 
um, toothbrush, toothpaste, and they made me some Spanish food. How do you make Spanish food in prison? I don't know, but they took ramen noodles. They took a little pack of rice. They took some summer sausage. Next thing you know, I got arroz con carne. I was like, it was, it was awesome. So they told me who to watch out for. And um, and uh, there was one guy there. Well, he, he was a punk. And uh, they called him Nickelhead because apparently he'd give head for a book of stamps. He This guy looked like... This guy looked just like Cory Booker, and uh, he <laughs> he was uh, he was very flamboyant and uh, homosexual, and and but he looked just like Cory Booker, and he'd always have this little beanie on, and somebody had sliced his face because he had this old scar that ran right across his face, and he kept asking me if uh, I had I had some stamps he can have. I was like, no. And then he come back and he goes, hey, you you got any stamps I can have? I'm like, no. And he, he, he was trying to just to like come and talk to me. And he's like, do you have, uh, the, you wouldn't happen to have any more stamps, would you? And I was like, dude, do I owe you stamps? And he's like, no, I said, then get the hell out of here. So that was the end of him. And um, it ended up being in a rough place because, uh, I mean, the unit that I was in was Thunderdome. I'm sorry, that's I was in, I think I said I was in a medium, it was a low. It was uh, it was like Thunderdome, but like I said, the, the Puerto Ricans looked out for me there, and I didn't get jumped on the compound. Um, but after a while, when they found out who I was, they agreed not to jump me on the compound. But after count, I had to go to the back, and in this in this uh, in this uh, unit, the lights in the back were were put out. the The inmates had taken them down, and. Uh, couple of times a week I have to go back there and just be like fight club and I got to a point where my hands were swollen and it was a it was a weekly event but when I talk about the networks that they had in prison they um they we would know ahead of time be like hey tomorrow morning stay in your cube because there's going to be a Mexican fight this gang of Mexicans going to attack that gang of Mexicans and don't tell because, you know, then they'll come after you. And as soon as the doors open for breakfast and, and the units were let out, these guys rush in, start stabbing everybody. Now, you know, they, they have makeshift shanks in prison and shivs, you know, but one of the most popular ones is a, uh, is a pork chop bone. And I saw this guy stab another dude with a pork chop bone. He stabbed him like 12 times. It's almost like one of those uh, little knives that goes between your fingers. And uh, there was, and when I talk about the caliber of the guards, um, on on Friday nights, and you know when the weekends came around, they had PG movies that they would play in the TV room, and um, I had a little connection, and I would get, I hang out, I hung out with a group of guys. Now I told you if you had to find a friend in prison. Um, if you can have one, well, my friend in prison was a bank robber slash cop killer. He had been in for 22 years and, um, I didn't trust anybody in prison, but if I had to trust somebody, it had to be this guy because he was just, he looked out for me all the time. And, and, um, I used to invite him to eat because he didn't have no money. He worked in a place called Unicor, which is the government, government, uh, 
um, industries. It's their company. All the desks and uniforms and a lot of the things that the government uses, even in like fighter jets and and, in the military, are made by Unicor. So each prison has a different facility. And they one will make steel beds, another one will make wooden uh, office furniture, another one will make... You know, when I first went into the Border Patrol, my first body armor that was issued to me was made by Unicor. So go figure. So for a book of stamps, if you need a you know a special little bag, you can have one of the guys over there just stitch you up, and there you go. You got a little tactical bag to carry with you. But um, 